We are uh, continuing a series today through the book of Ephesians. We're talking about God's grand plan. Uh, Ephesians is a, is a wonderful book that talks about um, life in community in Jesus, but also talks about some of the big uh, cosmic plans that, that, uh, that, that Jesus's redemption has, has wrought, has, has accomplished, and how God works that out in and, and among us in our day-to-day lives. And so last week, if you need a bit of a refresher, uh, a catching up, or you just missed it and, and kind of want to know the, the main point, the whole main point of the book of Ephesians is actually in the fourth verse of the, the first chapter. It goes like this. He chose us. So this is the, the big point overall. He cho- chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is the main point of Ephesians. Everything else is commentary, as several commentators have actually made that observation. I love how the message puts this, same verse, long before he laid down, laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and to be made holy by his love. I love that. That's so, so good. Uh, so hopefully that, that energizes you a bit, catches you up to look at the rest of the book over the next several weeks as we uh, work through the, the verses and the chapters in Ephesians. So before we jump into the next portion of our text today, I want to tell you a story about Lawn Chair Larry. Anybody knows, know a story that's been made famous recently uh, by a guy named Larry in a lawn chair? So what happened is in California, so this is not a Florida man story, this is a California man story. Okay. Several years ago in Los Angeles, a, a guy named Larry went to the military surplus store and bought 75 weather balloons. Now, these weren't like as big as the Chinese weather balloons that kind of went on vacation here recently to the United States. These were just like military surplus weather balloons. He bought 75 of them, and he inflated them and attached them to his lawn chair. Okay, so he had some buddies, of course, because there's always buddies involved. He had some buddies over to his house, and when they let the rope go from the lawn chair, instead of this leisurely lofting up into uh, the sky, he shot up like a rocket, is what his friends said. But, but Larry, I want you to know, Larry was no dummy. Larry brought along with him a peanut butter sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and a BB gun. And his plan was, if he got too high, he was going to shoot out some of the weather balloons and just kind of like maintain a nice lofty position overlooking his neighborhood. Um, and so he got to a certain, he kept, he kept going up and going up, and wouldn't you know it, he got hungry and thirsty, so he cracked a beer open, had, a, uh, peanut, had his peanut butter sandwich, and promptly passed out about 2,000 feet up in the air. And so LAX, the LAX airport, were the ones that actually called in Larry. There's an unidentified flying dude hovering over our airport. And so um, the SWAT team pulled off a rescue that would make the Fast and Furious franchise jealous as they got him down. So they pulled him down, got him out of the air, got him safely on the ground. They asked him two questions. Um, would, you, would you ever do this again? And he said, oh no, with some more colorful language. He would never do that again. And then they asked him, well, why Larry? Why did you go up in your lawn chair with 70 weather balloons attached to it? And he said, I just got tired of sitting around. (laughs) I just got tired of sitting around. I wanted a new perspective on things. And I don't know about you, but in my life, 
that can often be true. Now, do not try this at home. I will not take any responsibility for any inspiration, but I can kind of relate to lawn chair Larry. Like, isn't life more than the nine to five job, finding a couple buddies to go out to the golf course and you just hang on till you retire, and that's all of life. Like, in a lot of ways, that's kind of the American dream. The American dream, right, that we so need to be woken up from is work hard, play hard, save a lot of money, and you get to retire and just kind of coast until you die. And a lot of us in the church have bought into that. And so we go through our spiritual lives thinking, okay, I did the things, I've given the money, I've served, I've read the book, I heard the sermons, check, check, check. Is there all this is? Is it there more? Is it there more that could give me a new perspective that does not involve weather balloons and a six pack of beer, although that kind of sounds tempting sometimes? Isn't there more? Isn't there something that I can do? And if you look at the life of Jesus, you don't get the sense that he was a boring guy to be around. You, you don't get the sense that his disciples went around going, yawn, like, Jesus, yeah, we've heard this teaching before. Okay, yeah, like, when are you going to get to the good stuff? Like, Jesus is the good stuff. Do we realize that? Do we really know that there is no deeper theology, there is more, no more interesting man in the universe than Jesus himself? And I feel convicted in saying that because what I have to realize even as I teach from the scripture, is that if I'm bored with God, that's not God's fault. Like, if I have a problem with boredom, it's not because God is boring. There's some kind of disconnect that I'm experiencing, and I want to be very gentle with us, even like I'm being very, you know, outspoken about this. I want to be very gentle because I do know there are seasons where God, it, it just, we feel disconnected from God. We feel like we've prayed the prayers that we've been taught to pray, we've read the scriptures we've been taught to read, and I'm doing the things, and it's not working the same. I know there are seasons like that. That's, that we've, we've covered a bit of that in the past you know, month or so. What I'm really talking about is the, the everyday lives where our hearts just get a little bit colder and a little bit more distant. And we don't do the things that we know we probably ought to do, or we don't, we, we don't you know, uh, put, put ourselves in a place to receive more from God. We just kind of like wake up sometimes one morning and go, yeah, I'm so bored with my life, with God. Like, what, what is this all about? And again, I return to the person of Jesus. That guy is not boring. He was energizing to be around. His disciples, like, they had a chance to, to offboard to go elsewhere, to not, be, to not put up with all the trouble that Jesus caused. Like, he ruined every funeral he went to, including his own. That's not a boring guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, how is it that we get here and we follow him, right? There's gotta be more. In fact, take, take this for example. They saw Jesus with an intimate relationship that went so deep, the disciples go, Teach us how to pray. Like, that's the one thing we know in Scripture. They, they, they specifically pointed out and said that, that thing you do, that right there, the thing you do with your father, 
We want that because we see all the religious people. We see all these people that stand on the streets and they make these prayers and it's rote and dry and boring. And yeah, I got it memorized. There's no life in it. There's no authenticity. There's no connection. Whatever you have with the father, we want that because whatever they were identifying was exhilarating. It was adventurous. They thought it was the whole point of why they were alive and follow Jesus in the first place. So with that, and in fact, let me get to this. Henry Nouwen, when he talks about prayer in his book, The Way of the Heart, he says this, when we learn to descend with our mind into our heart, then all those who have become part of our lives are led into the healing presence of God and are touched by him in the center of our being. We're speaking here about a mystery, a mystery for which words are inadequate. It is the mystery that the heart, which is the center of our being, is transformed by God into his own heart, a heart large enough to embrace the entire universe. Through prayer, we can carry in our heart all human pain and sorrow, all conflicts and agonies, all torture and war, all hunger, loneliness, and misery, not because of some psychological or emotional capacity, but because God's heart has become one with ours. That, that sounds like an adventure. Uh, I read a tweet by a pastor that I respect. He said, bored people have entertainment. Busy people have lists. Missional people have stories. My goodness, I want stories. I want stories of lives, lives transformed, of the depths of God plumbed. I want stories of our hearts touching God's heart so pain and conflict, we have capacity because God's heart has become our own. That's what I want. And I think, I think, that's what Paul is touching on in this next section of Ephesians. That he's praying a prayer, not just a rote, write it down, memorize it, maybe say it when you're in trouble prayer, but actually a heartfelt, God's heart touching his prayer for the Ephesians. Let's read it. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the Lord of our, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So, God, uh, so Paul begins this prayer by noticing and saying, I, I, I've carried you in my hearts because of your, your great faith in Christ and your great love for all of God's people. So for that reason, I, I pray and I carry you on my heart. 
He tells them that about this prayer that he prays, and he, he says specifically that he prays for them, for the Holy Spirit, to give to them wisdom and, and revelation and a greater measure in, in their lives so that they could have a deeper knowledge of Jesus. And he uses this unique phrase that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, may be opened. That's, that's not used anywhere else in Scripture. That's not a phrase Paul uses anywhere else. For his close friends, for his extended family, for the church that he planted, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be full of light. He's seeking enlightenment. Not an Eastern, uh, a Buddhist sort of enlightenment. Not a, I need to separate myself and, and, and deny you know, my, myself and my existence to, to become one with the universe. It's, it's an enlightenment where his, the, the internal being of, of who they are is filled with the light and truth of Jesus. So he prays for them. And how many of you know, Paul was really good at prayer. And this is a really good prayer that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Paul prayed a lot of prayers that God answered. He healed a lot of people. He cast out a lot of demons. How many of you know, like, an anointed, Holy Spirit-inspired prayer like this was just about as sure to happen as him writing and saying the words? This is a good prayer, right? So notice that, that Paul is writing, though, to people that already know Jesus. This isn't a, I'm praying for you that you would know Christ, because you don't know him at all. These are people that have already surrendered their life to Jesus, and Paul is praying for them to know Jesus. There's something for us here, isn't there? If you follow Jesus, and if you don't, you're welcome here. We love you. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're worshiping with us online or in person. For those who do follow Jesus, who have had a, a moment of surrender in their lives to follow and apprentice Christ, to be with him, to be like him, and to do the things that he does, this is a prayer that we can pray for ourselves to know Jesus. This is not a one-time knowing. It's not a, a memorization of facts. It's not a one-time surrender. It's an ongoing revelation and understanding of who Jesus is, what he has done, and his plan for the entire cosmos, okay? We have a tendency to read the word know as a collection of information that we grasp and we check it off. Jim Harrington, in his book, The Leader's Journey, says this, in the modern Western way of learning, the student is often passive, merely absorbing information. And, and I will be honest, the irony of me saying this while you are, all are sitting there lecture style listening to me is not lost on me. We're gonna move on, okay? <laughs> we can do this and then say there's more to it, okay? Jesus practiced a way of learning in which his disciples followed him around doing what their master did and learning along the way. It was an action-oriented approach to learning. The Hebrew concept of knowing something reflects this approach to learning. Genesis 4.1 says that Adam knew his wife Eve. That is, he experienced her sexually. In Hebrew thought, we know something or someone by experience. Having information is not enough and, in fact, is quite dangerous. Proficiency with information tricks us into thinking that we have truly mastered practices for living the life to which Jesus calls us. Experience, on the other hand, is the thing that awakens us from this illusion. Those who have truly mastered the art of Christian living have not only internalized information, ideas, or concepts, they have also practiced applying them in a wide variety of settings. As a result of this practice and reflection, learned skills and acquired values naturally flow from the person's very way of being, i.e., they have achieved mastery. So when you read the word no, 
And, and Paul uses t- twice in this passage that we're looking at. He uses no twice. Instead of thinking memorizing concepts, substitute experience unto mastery. That's what Paul is getting at. He wants the Ephesians to know Christ, which means not just concepts, but to experience Jesus at a greater depth so so they gain mastery over this Christian way of living, of following the way of Jesus, okay? Something that makes this passage so powerful is its usefulness to us today. We still have room to grow in our mastery of following the way of Jesus, right? That's a yes. That's, I'm just gonna, that's not a hard test. I'm just gonna give you the answer to that. We still have room to grow. And so this is a legitimate prayer that we can pray for ourselves and for others. Again, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. It's one of, if you, if you are familiar with the House of Prayer in Kansas City, they call these the apostolic prayers. It's the written down prayers prayed by Jesus and the other New Testament writers. They're Holy Spirit-inspired prayers. It's basically like when you pray these prayers, you paint a target on whoever you're praying for. So would you like more knowledge, more experience in the way of Jesus to know him better? Then pray, God, give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so I can experience Jesus more. For my family, God, release your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation over my family so they know Jesus. God, release wisdom and revelation from your spirit over our church so we all would know Jesus better. See, it can flow very easily, very simply, but we're praying the scripture over ourselves, over our loved ones, and over people we kind of can't stand sometimes too. They, they qualify for this as well. God, help them know you. Please experientially get them, okay? Wisdom and revelation all over their lives. We can do that. It's, it's okay, right? So Christians throughout the centuries have prayed this prayer for themselves and for each other. So a really practical, simple thing you can do is just open the Bible and say what the Bible says in the form of a prayer. And the Holy Spirit will honor that because he has done so for centuries, right? Okay, so to gain a better understanding of this prayer, Paul prays specifically for three things out of this wisdom and revelation prayer, okay? He hits on three specific things that I wanna go a little bit more deep into. Uh, He first prays for them to experience, to know the hope to which he has called you. Okay, so oftentimes we talk about the one dimension of our calling. There's actually three dimensions of our calling, right? The first is the call to follow Jesus that's open to everyone everywhere, to take up their cross, to deny themselves, to embrace the the free offer of forgiveness and grace, to be adopted into God's family, and to follow Jesus the rest of their lives. We are all called to follow Jesus, That's the first, it's a salvific uh, calling on our lives. The second calling is the purpose for which you've been created. God had a plan in mind when he designed you and knit you together in your mother's womb. He's called you for a purpose on planet earth. And it's bigger than your nine to five job. And it's bigger than your family too. Those things are very important. But what happens if, if your call, if your purpose is all tied up in your family, what happens when your kids move out and you will want them to move out at some point in time? If your call is to be a good mom or a good dad, that's a great call, but it's bigger than that because when they move out, who are you without them? Or you're nine to five. If you're called to be an accountant, 
You're called to be a lawyer. You're called to be a teacher. Those are great jobs. Those are great career paths. But what happens when you retire? What is your identity then? So your calling, your purpose includes all those things. Those things are an expression and oftentimes a seasonal assignment that you can look back on. Seasons of your life where you're like, I don't know why I had that job. I don't know why I got let go that way. I don't know why God told me to move on and quit. And I don't know why. But you can trace back your bigger themed life purpose through different jobs, life stations, relationships. And sometimes you can, you can thread together an overarching purpose for your life, okay? Many, many resources on this, so if you're interested, you can come find me and I can point you in the right direction. But for me, what I can look at, like I've had, I haven't had a ton of jobs, but in my teens and, and, and 20s, like I worked a lot of retail jobs. I spent some time uh, managing a Dylan's video store when you know Dylan's had videos that you walked in and I, I did that for a season. Uh, I worked at, at a bank. It was a very enjoyable job, but sometimes in these jobs, I, I grew frustrated because I always wanted to help people at a, diff, a, a deeper level than I was able to. And I had... Like I had this love-hate relationship with, with uh, uh, standard education. Like school just did not like interest me a lot, but I had this deep hunger to learn and to, to grow and to know things. And so it's no, it's no uh, surprise that I found myself in a vocation as a pastor called to spend time with God, to study theology, to go deep in doctrine and, and in prayer, and then to help people in, in an overflow of that with deeper issues in their lives. See, I couldn't have told you why all those jobs and why all those relationships and all, you know, the times I got not hired or, or let go or whatever or reassigned, it didn't make sense at the time. But I can, I can fast forward and look at that and go, man, God, you were really writing a story with my life that makes a lot more sense now. And you give me another 20 years and a lot more stuff is going, going to make sense because God, what he has is the yes in my heart to follow him no matter what and no, no matter where. And when you have that, and, and you have that hunger to, to, to understand your calling and your purpose in this life, um, your, your guess is what God needs to form that story, okay? So we have this salvific call, we have our, our calling and purpose in this life, but what few people talk about is we have a, another call to the, the, the next age, the age to come, which makes sense of a lot of things in this life. Um, the Hebrew people thought and, and taught that life on earth right now was, was a womb and that the greater birth was to come in the age to come. I, I've heard it said, this is your 70-year internship on planet earth to know Jesus, to discover things about yourself. And the good news about thinking that way, thinking maybe more Hebraically, uh, is that things that you do on this earth, as you follow Jesus and in your vocation and in your life purpose, much of that, some of that, we don't actually know how much, but some of that will actually carry over into the age to come. We have this disembodied understanding of what heaven is gonna be like where, bless you all, man, allergies are terrible right now, aren't they? It's just, yeah, so just a big bless you over everyone and Lord clear the air here. Um, many of us think, because we picked this up through popular culture, that like heaven is gonna be us disembodied with our feet kicked up on a cloud. Or it's kind of like one long, unending day in the suburbs where we just kind of meander around and, and that's it. Um, scripture actually paints a different picture, although it's not really fully filled in for us. But the kingdom of God, when it comes in its fullness, 
Uh, Isaiah talks about there will be people who are rebuilders. They actually rebuild, rebuild city and culture, and, and so we'll need uh, architects, and we'll need engineers and, and construction professionals. Uh, speculate with me just for a little bit. Again, if, if we, there, there's this tendency to think we'll know everything all at once, once heaven comes, and that's not actually true. Um, it, there's indications in scripture that we'll actually meet people for the first time. We'll, we'll get to catch up on their life story. So you may wanna hang out with the Apostle Paul and go, dude, that thorn in the flesh thing, I got five bucks riding on that. What was that? You tell me, right? <laughs> or you, know, you meet with Mother Teresa and you go, tell me about your life, I've read all about you. Uh, but I wanna know, like, what was it like in Calcutta, right? So we'll need cafes where you can get a resurrection flat white and hear all about Mother Teresa's upbringing, right? Like, who's gonna run that? Who's gonna make those things, right? There's a feast at the end of the age. Where does that food come from? It's actual physical food. Jesus showed us that we will eat and we will drink in the resurrection. Who makes that? And don't you think there might be some recipe sharing then that comes in the age to come? Like, you couldn't get Aunt Brenda's recipe just quite right for the cookies she got, so you might be just able to ask her, how did you do that? Let's make those. Just speculate a little bit with me, because we are so bored with what heaven looks like. So let your mind wander and wonder for what God might have on the horizon for us. And we will need creative artists to continue expressing the beauty of God all throughout the age to come. We will need teachers to keep teaching us about who God is because he's inexhaustible. You will have a perspective that is grounded in truth and love to share with your neighbor. Let me tell you what God is like. I just met with him. It blew my mind all over again. Let me tell you about it. So what you do to serve Jesus in your calling will carry over to some degree in the age to come. Isn't that marvelous to think about? I think I, we're good, right? I'm not, I'm not a heretic, I promise. Like, you may not have thought about this, but I could, I could show you chapter and verse. Anyway, we're gonna go, we're gonna move on. So the question you might ask yourself right now, how to access the call to salvation, the call to your purpose, and the call to eternity is, what is my mission now? How am I spending my time how am I spending my, my, my attention and my emotions? What am I giving that to that will continue on to the next age to help people, right? So next, um, Paul prays for them to experience his inheritance and his holy people. So it's true to say that we have a rich inheritance in God. In fact, Paul just got done saying in, in verse 14 earlier that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance in God. So we have a rich inheritance waiting for us and, and being unfolded continuously in the, in the current age in God himself. So it's true to say we have an inheritance in him. It's also equally true to say that God has an inheritance in us, his people. And Paul prays that we would know, we would know his inheritance in his holy people. God's delight is in his people. He's invited us to, to see him as, as our exceeding great treasure and reward, but God delights in his people. And, and the way that the, uh, the scripture frames it, in this depth of enjoyment, is that in Revelation 19, six, 
it frames it as the, the anticipation that Jesus has for, to be united with his people is the same kind, same like of anticipation that a groom has for his bride on their wedding day. The anticipation of watching your, your bride come down the aisle in her dress, the, the joy, the surprise, the delight, that's the anticipation that Jesus has waiting for us as his church. It says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Jesus has anticipation on that day where we stand before him and we're united with him and we sit with him at that wedding feast. His delight, his enjoyment, his joy is in his church, his people. Now the challenge for us is having that kind of joy for each other. Because let's be honest, this whole thing is messy. People are complicated. I'm complicated, right? And so it's the necessity is getting in touch with God's joy for his people, his delight for his people. Joining ourselves in a healthy way to community where we can find it and be formed by it and form it uh, ourselves by our influence and input. So the question we have, we can ask, is where is my community? If, God, if Paul's prayer is to know God's inheritance in his church, in his people, we can ask, where are my people? Where is my community? Where I'm finding delight, joy, accountability sometimes to grow into the person that God has created me to be and, and certainly support. Where is my community? And then third, Paul prays for them to experience, to know his incomparably great power. Paul ends his prayer by saying that the same power that raised Christ is the same power he now exercises, seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, above all dominion, above all over other authorities, above all other names, Jesus has power over them. And that same power lives in us through his Holy Spirit. We have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and the same power that he holds all things in existence in its existence. That same power lives in you if you follow Jesus. Although, I will say, power is a contested word right now. We are very familiar with all forms of abusive power that we see have made the headlines, right? Right? Companies, multi-million, billion-dollar companies whose, whose uh, chief executive officers are abusing power. They have a hierarchy that, that funnels all power upward and hoards money, resources, influence at the top of that pyramid. We're familiar with the abuse scandals even in the church. We're aware of, of, of the abuse of power, the controlling, manipulative use of power that, that people in leadership have used to people uh, on, against people in their organizations. So we're aware of that. So we have to be very careful in how we think about power, how we talk about power, and of course, how we use power. We have to follow the example of Jesus and how he used his power. All the power that he has, how does he use that even now? Uh, ben Sturk and, and Matt Tebe, and I butchered their names, and I'm sorry, um, having the mind of Christ in their book, they said this, everyone has some measure of power. So get that, everyone has some measure of power. 
Power is held in many ways in culture, and each of us has ways we possess cultural power and ways we do not. Often we don't recognize the power we have until someone points out to us that they don't have the same power. And speaking of Jesus, in every situation, Jesus recognized how worldly power was at work, used the power he had to redistribute power inside the current system, what we might call restorative justice, while simultaneously seeking to overturn the entire system of power, redefining the very nature of power itself, which we might call transformative justice. These aren't three distinct activities for Jesus, but facets of one impulse. So Jesus always used his power to benefit others. He never abused his power by taking it for himself. He didn't use it to prop up his own image or ministry. He let power actually exit him and, and, and heal and, and, and deliver other people around him. Jesus used his power to help those who were marginalized and oppressed in culture and his society. He used his power to challenge the elites of his day to push back against the ways that they were abusing power, that they were hoarding power and keeping it out, away and out of the hands of those who needed it the most. Jesus used his power to speak out on behalf of those that no one would speak for. That's how Jesus used power. Diane Landberg in her book, Redeeming Power, says this. Every time we treat someone with dignity rather than shame, respect rather than discard, Concern rather than exploitation, kindness rather than brutality, and careful attention rather than turning away, we are doing things that are the reverse of trauma and evil. God will restore a place of safety and laughter and blessing. In the meantime, he has called us to do the same for one another. Have we actively worked to repair the desolations of generations? Or do we say, I was not there, it is over, you should be fine now. Do we spend our efforts to ensure safe streets for the vulnerable in our towns and cities? Or do we let them live wherever they live and feel grateful we live elsewhere? Has our presence as the body of Christ in this world blessed the nations, both around the world and at our door? It may be easier to understand power if we speak of it as influence. You might think, I don't have a lot of power, but certainly you have influence. You can speak into the lives of those around you. That's power. You can exercise leadership in your workplace or in your school, in your neighborhood, and in your family. You can have influence. Jesus used his influence to serve other people and to glorify God, never to take it for himself. We just went through the the three temptations of Jesus and his testing. The devil used the, the uh, tried to elicit desire for power to get Jesus to sin, he wouldn't do it. He would only glorify God, rebuke the devil, and seek to serve other people with his power, his influence. So the question we can ask ourselves, the, the final point that Paul is trying to make is that we would know, we would experience his great power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you have access to. So that the question then becomes, who am I influencing? How am I using my position, my privilege, my power to serve and better other people's lives, okay? So one final thing I'll say as we wrap up is that I wanna, spiritual boredom isn't necessarily cured overnight. I love the and suddenlies of God, right? The Pentecost Sundays where Holy Spirit just shows up and wrecks people's lives in like a really good way. 
I love those moments, but those moments are often built on times of waiting, of times of testing, of times of trial, right? And I'm sure many of you are in that same space right now, bored with God, not sure where to, do, where to turn, where to go, what to say, and you're going through some sort of trial, some sort of, of tough time right now. And what I do wanna tell you and encourage you is that while this sermon, I'm just gonna name my own humanity and, and inability, this probably won't cure your spiritual boredom. But what I do know is that God is faithful. What that means is you can trust him. That you can take as, as cold and as dull of a heart that you have, and as weak and as frail as prayers and desires you have, and you can go to God with them. And you can go the next day. And you can go the next day, actually maybe skip a couple days because life happens, but you show up the next week. You show up with the week, right? Isn't that how it works? It's like my Bible reading plan. Oh no, <laughs> I am way behind. We won't even go there. Um, it's time to catch, like God honors that. That is a yes in your heart. As weak, as fragile as it is, God will honor that if you continue to show up. If you continue to say, yes, God, yes to you and all that that means, and help me in my weaknesses, God will honor that. Jesus said this, whoever has will be given more. <laughs> That's good news. That's good news for all of us, isn't it? Because let's be honest, it, it's rough right now. Being a Christian, following Jesus in our cultural moment, with the church the way that it is in the West, especially, and, and the culture pressing in on us, and all the other things vying for our attention, this, what I'm talking about, is very difficult right now. But Jesus says that little bit, that little whisper of a yes, I can use that if you give that to me, and if you keep coming back, I will add to it. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. That right there, that is money in the bank spiritually. You can take that right there to Jesus and say, you said, you said you will give more. Here's my yes, make it bigger. This little ember that's barely hanging on, breathe on that Holy Spirit. Give me wisdom, give me revelation. And Jesus, you said in your word, you said in your scripture by your own lips that you will give more. And I need that today. He is faithful to do that, okay? I'm gonna have the worship team come up. Why don't you stand with me? I wanna ask this question of us, okay? To put this into practice, how might my understanding of my mission, my community, or my influence be contributing to spiritual boredom? How might be just knowing some things about the Bible or knowing some things about God, but really not grasping the depth of the power that's available to you. The, the, the call, the expansive call on your life that leads into eternity. How might not understanding the importance of finding your people, finding community, how might that be for us, leading us to spiritual boredom and disconnection from God? So as you sit with that, I'm gonna invite the communion service to come up too. We're, what we do have been doing every week is that we've been le reading the Lord's Prayer together. Um, so this is out of Matthew 6, verse 9. And we read this as a, uh, as a prayer and as a confession to prepare our hearts. We practice open communion here, which means all we ask is that you're in a right relationship 
with God through Jesus and in a right relationship with others in the church, in the body of Christ. Um, you can come up the center aisle uh, during the, the ending music portion and uh, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake of communion. We also have a, a gluten-free option in the menu if you, if you uh, require that as well. So let's read this together. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive, forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.